So our speaker for this morning, it's me again. I'm so sorry. Um, so Matt, our vicar, is quite rightly enjoying a lovely holiday with his family down in Cornwall. Um, so he's, he's resting up, which is good. Um, and we're, yeah, we're, we're carrying on with our Four Gardens sermon series. Um, if you haven't met me before, if you're new, my name's, my name's Gareth. I, if you, you know, if you turned up late or if, if you're watching online in the future on the YouTube, hello, um, my name's Gareth. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm the curate here at Bay Church, which means I'm one of the, um, one of the clergy, um, married to my wife, Athena. Uh, we've got two little ones. We've been living in Payton for about a year now. Um, we came down here to be part of the Bay Church adventure. Um, and this morning, we are continuing on in the third part of our four-part series of talks entitled Four Gardens, Cultivating Lives of Hope. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that our lives will bear fruit when we abide in him. And so we've been considering what it might look like for our lives to bear fruit. Because just like gardens, our lives need a little bit of tending to. They need a little bit of cultivating and shaping in order to, to shape the kind of life which Jesus offers to each and every one of us. And so we've been considering four key gardens that we find in the Bible and what we might learn from each one. So a couple of weeks ago, I kicked us off. Here are the four gardens, little icons for each one. Um, I kicked us off a couple of weeks ago um, with the Garden of Eden, where we explored how God is the gardener. And actually cultivating lives of hope starts at repentance from doing things our own way and the desire to follow God's way. And then last week, uh, last week the, the brilliant Rachel um, looked at Jesus' suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. And she encouraged us to trust God even in the midst of the difficulties that we may face in life. And this week, we find ourselves at an empty garden tomb on that Sunday morning where Jesus has risen from the dead. This week, we're in the garden of victory. So we're going we're gonna to turn to the Bible. Um, I'm going to invite Scarlett to come up. Is Scarlett here? Yeah, there she is. Hey, come and read the Bible to us, Scarlett. If you've got a Bible, yeah, round of applause for Scarlett, quite right. If you've got a Bible and you want to crack it out, we are in John 20, 11 to 18. Don't have my reading glasses. I've reached that age now where I have to, should be wearing them. But anyway, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other one at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Reboti, Reboni, I can't read Aramaic, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news 
I have seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, amen, amen. Quite right. Thank you, Scarlett. Let's pray. Let's pray, actually. That's a great, great passage. Jesus, we thank you for your resurrection. Come and speak to us now. May my words be your words, and may our hearts be open to receiving what you want to say to us now. In your precious name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a story. In the summer of 2011, a Japanese farmer planted some sunflower seeds in some soil, and they grew into a field of beautiful sunflowers. The end. But what's remarkable is that a few miles away from that soil stood the damaged Daiichi nuclear facility, which had been leaking radiation into the surrounding area of Fukushima since a devastating tsunami had struck northwest Japan just a few months earlier, causing a nuclear meltdown. The soil was barren. Worse than barren, it was toxic. It was full of radioactive components. And yet this farmer continued to plant sunflower seeds. Why would he do that? Well, firstly, it's because he had learned that sunflowers have a remarkable ability to draw up radioactive isotopes and store them in their seeds. Once the radiation has been drawn up from the soil, the farmer will be able to harvest the flowers, and the authorities would then be able to dispose of the radioactive material in a much easier and cost-effective way than they ever would have been able to otherwise. Secondly, it's because sunflowers look nice. I've got a little sunflower down here. Athena, would you mind, mind passing it to me? Um, I did look for like photos of sunflowers, and I thought, no, let's just get a real sunflower, you know? You, you all know what sunflowers look like, but I'm just going to put it there. There's a sunflower. They look nice. I'm a big fan. Sunflowers look nice. In a bleak and barren landscape where many were grieving loved ones, fleeing their homes and feeling shocked and confused, suddenly sunflowers were being planted everywhere providing these gratuitous glimpses of beauty. These sunflowers overturned the toxic nature of the soil and brought a tiny glimpse of hope to people in an otherwise desperately broken time. And so a question. Do you ever feel like the the soil around you is beyond repair? Do you ever feel like it's tainted beyond repair in some way? I feel like I'm a relatively optimistic kind of person. If you ask me, oh, Gareth, is your, is your glass half full or glass half empty? I'm more like, I'm just really happy to have a glass. Frankly, thanks very much. Fill it with whatever. It's fine. Um, but sometimes when I watch the news, I, d- I don't know about you, when I watch the news, sometimes I can't help but despair a little. We've got wars raging on the international scene, our national politics in turmoil again, and a whole host of desperate problems affecting the lives of people in our local area. And frankly, that's before we even really consider the environmental crisis which which humans have created, the effects of which we're going to be very aware of this week in our country and across Europe. And sometimes it's really easy for us to feel helpless and hopeless. Sometimes I can't help but wonder, is the soil of our culture so full of toxicity that it's beyond repair? 
And maybe, maybe though, it's, it's even more personal than that sometimes. Maybe there are things in our own lives where turmoil and desperation feel like they've settled in. Maybe there are parts of the gardens of our, of our lives where we feel like the, like the soil couldn't possibly give life to anything. Nothing can possibly blossom or bloom there. Does the soil of your life ever feel like that? Does it ever feel so full of brokenness and radiation that you can't imagine anything blossoming or blooming there? Because if that's you, if you've been there, then I have good news for you today. The very places in your life where you feel like nothing can possibly grow, that is where Jesus wants to plant sunflowers in your life. The very places in our culture where we feel like the toxicity of the soil is just too great to nurture anything, that's exactly where Jesus is inviting us to plant sunflowers. The resurrection of Jesus says that no part of our lives, no part of our culture is so barren that it's beyond the life-giving power of God. Because the garden where they once laid the crucified body of Jesus is now empty. And the garden of his tomb is now the garden of his victory. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus' victory is now our own victory. Death has now lost its sting. Jesus' resurrection paves the way for the resurrection of the places in our lives and culture where death seems to have already won. When we place our trust in Jesus, we find that where, where there once was a tomb, there now stands a victory. Where once there was radioactive soil, there now stands a beautiful field of sunflowers. And just like those sunflowers in Fukushima, our lives can now bear grapefruit because of the impact of Jesus' resurrection. Those sunflowers overturned the toxic nature of the soil and brought a glimpse of hope in an otherwise desperately broken time. And so can we. And this is what Mary Magdalene finds out for herself outside that garden tomb in our passage. At the start of our passage, we find Mary crying outside a tomb. She's grieving the death of Jesus, her friend. And now even worse, she's come to complete the burial preparations for his body, and the body is gone. She's grieving, she's hurting, and now she's very confused. There's a point in verse 14 where it says that she saw Jesus, but she didn't realize it was him. Now, why is that? Perhaps because it was, it was early morning, wasn't fully light. When my children wake me up in the middle of the night, I've, I can't see a thing sometimes without my glasses. So, you know, maybe she had a similar sort of thing going on. Perhaps she had turned and then seen someone else and then turned back and had her back to Jesus and she didn't fully recognize him. And, and also other times in the other Gospels, after his resurrection, G Jesus isn't immediately recognized by his disciples for some beautiful and mysterious reason. But I'll be honest, I, I wonder if Mary was just crying so much that she couldn't see Jesus properly through her tears. Maybe Mary is just so churned up, so racked with grief and confusion that she's just full on crying. Mary's not doing like some demure, dainty, you know, Victorian period drama sort of crying. There's none of that. It's like full on ugly crying. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm quite a sensitive chap. You know, I, I don't mind a little cry every now and then. Um, <laughs> cried at one of my kids' films the other day. That was... Uh, I hid it. It was fine. Um, but, um, but there have been times in my life where things ha have just felt so desperately sad that my crying couldn't help but go up a level. I don't know if you've been there. 
Um, have, you, have you ever done a full-blown ugly cry, you know, you, where you're so upset you can barely breathe and there's just snot everywhere and you're like, is it possible to cry all of the moisture out of my body? I'm going to Google that and find out. And so there is Mary outside of the tomb, full-on ugly crying. She desperately needs the seeds of hope to be planted in her heart. And yet, by the end of our passage, Mary's the one going around planting seeds of hope in the hearts of other people. What a remarkable, beautiful turnaround. And what caused it is at the heart of the hope that Mary now has to share. As she goes to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Mary, in her most heartbroken, hopeless moment, has this transformative encounter with the risen Jesus. And I think the fact that John, writing this gospel, takes the time to foreground her story in amongst all of the other people that have encounters with the risen Jesus means that we should pay attention to Mary's story because it lays out the transformative effects of the resurrection for our lives as well. She's the one entrusted with the good news that Jesus is risen. Jesus tells her, don't hold on to me in this moment because I'll always be with you. I need, to, I need you to go and plant seeds of hope in the lives of others. She's the one entrusted to go and tell the rest of the disciples. And this is absolutely remarkable for two reasons. Firstly, Mary is a woman. If, if you haven't noticed, Mary is a lady's name. Mary is a woman. In first century Israel, the testimony of a woman in a court of law counted for half of a man's testimony. That's to say that if a, women, uh, if a woman witnessed a man committing a criminal act, then the voice of the man legally carried twice as much weight as hers did. In short, Israelite women were not used to being believed. And so it makes absolutely no logical sense for Jesus to appear to her first. Literally none. None whatsoever. Why not go to literally any of his male disciples? Why not appear in the temple in front of all the male priests? Why appear to a woman in a garden? Because... By his resurrection, Jesus isn't just breaking down cultural divisions and barriers. He isn't just elevating the dignity of women in a culture which afforded them very little. But crucially, he's also overturning the brokenness and shame at the very core of the way that men and women relate to each other. That curse which emerged in the relationship between Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree in the Garden of Eden is now being undone. The curse brought in the Garden of Eden is being overturned in the Garden of Victory. And Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener, but in many ways, she's not that wrong. Because here he is planting seeds of hope in her heart. Here he is uprooting the weeds of sin which took a hold in the Garden of Eden. And secondly, Mary has this reputation which precedes her. Have you ever had a false reputation which other people have given you? Um, long ago, I used to work in an office, and one of my colleagues went on a sabbatical, and they left me in charge of their office plants. Three cacti. Cacti, right? How hard can it be? All was going well for the first few days. And then on day four, I dropped one of the cacti and instinctively caught it. Don't do that. Don't do that, my friends. It's really painful. They're not meant for catching. Two days later, I dropped all three of them. 
And I thought, well, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to pick, I'm not going to catch them. But then they'd all just hit the floor. And then the next day, I realized that I had been overwatering the cacti. And so it turns out that a cactus, I didn't know this until this exact moment, turns out a cactus is able to store large amounts of water, but once that storage space runs out, the plant will literally fall apart if it's subjected to a, a brute, bit of brute force. And so eventually the roots rotted, the cell walls ruptured, I dropped them on the floor, goodbye cacti. And so I'd killed these three cacti within a week and a half. And one of my other colleagues came to me and said, Gareth, you're less nurturing than a desert. And it was funny, and I laughed. But now I had this reputation which preceded me. I was the cactus killer. And, and the guy who was less nurturing than a desert. And it might have been banter, and it was quite funny, but it persisted. The banter persisted for a long, long time. And, and people said it enough that actually it began to grind me down a little bit. This funny joke at first began to grind me down. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm not that nurturing, actually. Oh, no. What do I do with that? And actually, you know, it piled on top of all sorts of other stuff in my life. But it's, it's been one of the great redemptive moves of God in my life that, that, um, that since then he's put me in places where again and again I've had the great privilege of investing in and nurturing other people. Other people gave me a reputation. God overturned it. And so back to Mary and her reputation. We don't actually get told much about Mary's backstory. And so throughout history, people have just assumed her to be a woman of loose morals, to put it kindly. But there's actually very little in the Bible to suggest that that's the case. And so we've historically given her this unfair reputation by just sort of mixing her up with other people in the Bible. But even in the Bible, she is first introduced as a woman who was delivered from demons by Jesus. And so she's introduced, she's picked out, she's identified by her lowest moments. And we've continued to do that throughout history. And so to begin with, she has this reputation, this thing from her past, which enters into the room before her in the eyes of others. And Jesus overturns it all with just one word. Mary. Mary. He doesn't care what other people say about her because of what his resurrection says about her. He doesn't define her by her lowest moments because they're precisely the soil in which he wants to plant those seeds of hope. He doesn't hear the gossipy whispers of others. He only cares about whispering the truth to her. Mary. Mary, I see you. Mary, I see you in your grief and your confusion. Mary, it's all been overturned. Everything sad is coming untrue. Mary, I see you. Mary. And it's at that moment that she recognizes him. And she cries out, Rabboni, teacher. And I can almost hear the joy in her voice when I read that part of the passage. In John 15, Jesus says that when we trust in him, his joy will, will be in us and our joy will be complete. This is what complete joy looks like. The soil of Mary's grief is the place where Jesus plants seeds of hope, which now blossom into complete joy, like sunflowers blossoming in a radioactive field. Theologian N.T. Wright puts it like this, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. 
The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. Just as Jesus planted seeds of hope in the heart of Mary and then sent her out to do the same thing for others, he's inviting us to do the same thing now. To be people who plant sunflower seeds where the soil seems toxic. To be people who plant seeds of hope in our culture. To be people who understand that Torbay has the second highest number of children in the care of the local authority in the whole country. And to be people who imagine what it might look like for each and every one of those precious children to be in a family where they are loved and known. To be people who recognize that there is something severely broken in our culture when there are over 800 recorded occurrences in Torbay each year of domestic abuse where children were present. And to be people who are inspired to break that pattern and contend for the safety and care of those who have been abused. To be people who understand that between 2007 and 2019, the proportion of Torbay's children living in deprivation doubled. And to be people who are moved by the Holy Spirit to say no more. No more. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because of the sunflower seeds of hope that we have to scatter. That he's placed in our hearts first and that we are now called to go and scatter elsewhere. Because the resurrection of Jesus says that everything about this world which is wrong, broken, twisted or deathly is going to come untrue. Whether it hurts, whether it is real and painful and riddled with grief, whether there is a barren patch of radioactive soil in your garden, and whether it is um, just broken, really broken, and it churns you up, however much it absolutely broke your heart, the resurrection of Jesus says that those broken things do not have the last laugh in your life. The resurrection of Jesus says that the very places in your life which you once thought were barren, lifeless, and toxic will one day be the places where sunflowers blossom and bloom. The resurrection of Jesus says that there is a new creation bursting forth right in the middle of this one, and God has made a way for heaven and earth to intersect so that we might have relationship with him. The resurrection of Jesus says that death has been conquered. And so whatever pulls you down, whatever reputation precedes you when you walk into a room, whatever baggage you lug behind you when you meet somebody new, whatever brokenness you feel defines you, none of that, none of that has the last laugh in your life. None of that has the last word in your life. The only person, the only person who has the last word in your life is the victorious, resurrected Jesus. And he looks at you. Yeah, amen. And he looks at you, even when you don't properly recognize him, even when the tears might be obscuring your view of him, and he simply calls your name. And when he calls your name, he invites you at the point of your deepest mourning, the point where it seems like death has won, the point where you are literally weeping outside a tomb, and he invites you to participate in his resurrection He invites you to participate in his joy. He invites you to participate in his victory. Amen.